From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. August is here, and parents across the country are helping children get ready to head back to school. The to-do list might include meet the teacher, schedule pickup, and back-to-school shopping, but it should also include a yearly health checkup. My favorite is the back-to-school shopping. (laughs) A back-to-school doctor's appointment can make sure that immunizations are up to date, provide a routine physical examination, and offer a chance to talk about your child's overall health and well-being with your health care provider. On today's program, we'll get some tips for back-to-school readiness from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, when should kids stay home from school if they're sick? And the benefits and risks of youth sports. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, it is hard to believe, but it's already time for our back-to-school show. Yay! Why are you excited? Your kids are leaving? <laughs> I'm going to send them back to school. Are you <laughs> okay, kidding? all right. And here to help parents and students get the school year kicked off right is Mayo Clinic family physician, Dr. Summer Allen. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you again. Thank you guys for having me. Dr. Allen, nice to see you. So um, you've got a couple kids, don't you? Um, you got them ready? I have two kids, and my son is starting second grade, and my daughter is still doing the pre-kindergarten. So one more year before kindergarten. See, they're excited to go to school when they're that size. <laughs> Mine, not so much. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, uh, how um, how do you get them prepared? What do you what do you do as an expert? So, <laughs> especially at their age, one of our biggest things is the sleep and getting them back on a routine. Because between vacations, my parents are here, and for most kids, and again, it's so nice outside. They're wanting to enjoy, since we've had rain most of our summer, (laughs) enjoy as much time as possible. So really starting to get a consistent bedtime routine and trying to get a consistent time that they wake up. And we have recommended time frames, really, of amount of sleep that kids should be getting. So for our 6- to 13-year-old kids, we typically recommend um, around 9 to 11 hours of sleep. And then for 14 and older, 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And how many weeks in advance, days in advance before the beginning of school should that you, you know, because you've got good intentions of doing it, but really when should you start? You know, in in reality, it would be great to give it a few weeks transition. I think Mm -hmm. for most people, it's probably, we're lucky if it's the week before school starts that they make that transition back to that routine. So let's talk about a health checkup. What Which kids need a health checkup, and when do you see them, uh, what do you talk about, and what tests do you get? Typically for our children by school age, so after they've had their five-year-old well child, we typically um, share with them that the checkups go about every two years, so or the odd years. Tell them, so seven, nine, 11 years old. And it gives us a good frame time to complete sports physical forms if they needed to check in on academics and how they're doing. From an immunization standpoint for kiddos, there's, uh, they're kind of pre-kindergarten or uh, pre-start to school immunizations, and that's anywhere between four to six years old. And then after that, the next one really starts at nine, which is the HPV vaccine they can get as uh, young as nine years of age, or they can schedule it with their 11-year-old uh, well child and immunizations because at 11 years old they'll get their tetanus and their meningococcal vaccine at that point. So they get a meningococcal vaccine at 11. They do. You a proponent of HPV? I am. You know, I have told 
countless uh, parents and families, when they've asked about it, that often, again, these things were developed. They're not a protection against everything, but it's a step in that direction to help decrease these cancers that we're seeing in young adults and older. And so that's why it was developed. And I think, again, the iterations of it now have led to even more strains of the HPV virus to be covered. I think I understood people's concerns uh, initially when it came out, but a lot of those uh, concerns that people initially had have all been resolved. And so I, I recommend it to all my patients. And again, now it's down to just two shots. So they yeah, do one and then good. six months apart. And it's not just the cancers that can develop from human papillomavirus. We've recently learned from Dr. Poland that 25% of American adults have genital warts. Yes. Do you see those fairly yes. frequently in your practice? We do. Any tests that you need to get for at any of these ages, or is it just pretty much talking, physical exam, and blood pressure? No, typically what we're, we're checking at these well-child visits is usually blood pressure, pulse, height, and weight. So following on the growth curve, really trying to make sure that we maintain um, healthy body image is another thing for our young um, children and adolescents that we try to monitor as well. Um, and from both extremes. So monitoring for early signs of obesity, but also for some who may struggle with being underweight or some um, unfortunate body image concerns. We want to try to track and follow that. Probably not everyone who's listening or watching this on YouTube uh, has a Mayo Clinic physician like I do for my children. Is it um, is it a standard that when those kids hit 13 and 14 that the parents are no longer in the room when this, these exams are taking place? I mean, I think that's a big deal for kids to be able to start taking ownership of their own physical health. No, exactly. So I actually even started usually by my seven-year-old and nine-year-old well-child visit. I start talking with the young children and with their parents present that when they come to future visits, there will be times where I'll ask their parents to step out. And or I also, and I say right in front of the parents so they're aware as well, that I can be a safe place. I talk to them about are there any concerns they have with kids at school or with teachers at school? Do they have someone they feel they can talk to? And if not, that they're always welcome to come and see me. And I make it clear to them up front that if they ask, you know, and I usually tell these young children, I say, you can just say, I need to go talk to Summer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that when they come in, that I'll ask their mom or dad to step out and we can chat. And as long as I know that they're safe, that what we talk about stays between the two of us. Us. If I'm worried about their safety, and then it's it's always cute. You can tell when they've had those talks. Some of them go, yeah, we heard that at school. So if we're going to hurt ourselves, you have to tell them. I said, yeah, I said, just to make sure you're safe. But <laughs> they, they've heard, and it's, it just tries to, again, create another place that they can come to talk if they're concerned. Something else that I have noticed is uh, these visits begin with a mental health screen, a mental health screening. And is that a standard across the country, or is that something that's just a Mayo Clinic standard? That is becoming a standard across the country, and that's increased because of the awareness to mental health um, challenges that are occurring in our adolescents and that we have, unfortunately, likely not screened and caught these early enough. So, yeah, we're starting routine screening. Tell us about that screening tool. What is it? Um, explain what it is. Uh, great question. So we utilize a PHQ-9M is the one for adolescent uh, patients, so for those 18 or under age 18. And it's similar to what um, some have seen or what is used in adults, which is the PHQ-9 or even the PHQ-2 initial screener. And it tries to ask about feelings of feeling hopeless, uh, sad, 
depressed lack of uh, or loss of interest in activities. It asks in the PHQ-9 M, it, it tries to ask about self-injurious behaviors or self-injury, uh, specific times when they may have thought of harming themselves, even if they haven't actively um, have a plan or thought most recently, which is in the past, have they? So again, to try to trigger that this may be something that was more acute in the past or again, in their age group that they may not be able to, as astutely kind of describe, I'm depressed at this mm-hmm. point. I have a question. 14, 15, 16-year-old girl calls your office, mm-hmm. wants to see you, parents are not there, asks for birth control. Mm-hmm. Do you give that prescription to them or without talking to their parents? Another great question. They have that opportunity. So that is, by law, a right and availability for uh, an adolescent patient to seek contraceptive support and care. Now, do I do they tell their parents or what conversation um, do they have about that? I, I always encourage them to make the right choices and smart choices to keep themselves safe. But we also talk about how would they have that conversation because there's certain things that I can't do from a screening perspective. So if they're coming in and they're sexually active, I can do a screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia, but it shows up pretty clear on mom and dad's insurance, the medical insurance, that that's what they were tested for. And so how would they have that conversation with them, and so if they're uncomfortable and unable to, I want to make sure they're safe. So then we talk about the other places that they could get that testing done, or other places where they could get um, support for contraceptive uh, things, you know, at cost and not have to use their parents' insurance. Well, and not just contraceptives, but okay. just talking about safe sexual practices. Yes. That's something that we did not have back in our day. That oh. you do now with patients. We do. And I think a lot of times there's this philosophy I was uh, talking with someone about, let's avoid it until till they ask about it. <laughs> you don't really want to avoid talking about it until they ask about it. <laughs> and trying to have a more open uh, ability. And I think it's for some parents feels uncomfortable for them to talk. So that's why I start that conversation early about feeling pressured about things or being asked about things that maybe makes them feel uncomfortable and that they can come and chat with me if they have concerns. And this is a long way away from getting ready to go back to school. So maybe uh, going back to school is just a good excuse to get patients in the door to, to just talk about their health care. Exactly. Dr. Summer Allen is a family physician at the Mayo Clinic. We're talking about going back to school, which is not that far away. Time for a short break. When we come back, healthy eating asks you some questions about how you get your kids to eat healthy. And probably most important, I want to ask you both, screen time. Oh, we'll <laughs> You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. We are with family physician Dr. Summer Allen. We're talking about some uh, going back to school, some tips from an expert. So let's go right to schedules. And when it comes to schedules, I'm sure it's important for the parents to try to stay on top of that. But there are apps that that you can get in school calendars where you can stay on top of things, right? I'm asking both of you. Yes, it becomes how many apps or calendars do you want going at once, I think, for some. How far do you want to get into what your kid is doing at school is another. Absolutely. I know a lot of schools now have online uh, basically repositories for where you can go and access what assignments they've completed, what assignments they haven't, what activities are upcoming, and sort of their check-in process through that. You know, when it comes to staying on top of homework and activities, I really encourage parents early on, again, within their developmental uh, age and appropriateness, but to start work plans and allow 
your child to start to manage and control this and understand, okay, I've been given an assignment, here's where it's due, and, and start to practice with time management and deciding based on what things they have do, what do they want to do first? Sometimes some kids will choose the thing that they enjoy most to do first. Others are going to choose that thing that's most challenging to them so then they can check it off the list and be done. But allowing them to start to manage this on their own, because if as parents, if we control it all for them, we don't achieve the ultimate goal, which is what I tell parents is that we want to raise independent, caring, responsible adults. And so we need to set up a situation where they can be successful. Starting early when they do fail, okay, well, what are what are some solutions they can think of? To, and a lot of times it's going to be talking to the teacher, but having them do it. Mm-hmm. it, it they by default want us to do it. They don't want to have that conversation about why they didn't bring their homework or why they missed it. But trying to start early with encouraging them to seek help and doing doing that on their own will help them develop that skill so when they get to high school and beyond that they know how to manage it. But I do think it's important to meet your kids' teachers, don't yes. you? So that if there is a problem that you need to discuss with the teacher, they know who you are, or they're at least have met you. Absolutely. And keeping an open line of communication around what are our strengths or what are opportunities. Uh, you know, I know even for my husband and I, we've always um, been fortunate and, and I've made an effort to meet our son's teacher and daughter's teachers right away. And that it's open. Again, they see anything that they're concerned about to let us know. Sure. And my son, again, at his age was more behavior stuff. But when that became a repetitive thing, we talked about, okay, well, what's something where he can own? And it started to be a check sheet that he had to get filled out by each of the teachers. And he had to um, see how they rated his behaviors. Ooh. And so it became something for him to own, though, nice. that he had to take to each of the teachers and bring home to us at the end of the week. And when they weren't, when they weren't all nines, trust me, my <laughs> husband and I were asking him why they were not nines. Well, it I goes like on that forever. Yeah. Yeah. I had one of those. Yeah, <laughs> turned out to be a great kid, though. Yeah, before, they all get yeah. before we get to screen time, yeah. let's talk about eating. Let's yeah. talk about healthy eating. The thing we need to remember is sleep and eating are are both fuels that our body needs in order to function. So starting the morning off with Getting a meal in that gives them some protein that's going to help sustain them until their lunchtime is really important. It's hard because so many people are busy. It's hard when you can't get them out of bed to get them to get a decent (laughs) meal in the morning. So trying to find those meals or those opportunities that will give them some protein and um, help sustain them until their lunchtime and give them the energy they need to get through their school day. And what about uh, fruits and vegetables? You force feed them, or what do you do with your kids? <laughs> so that's a really good question, and I, and I, I am actually going to reference what my my colleague asked my son how how much fruits and vegetables he was supposed to have, how many servings. And after she asked him the, the number of servings, she said, who's responsible for that? And he looked at mom and dad, and she goes, uh-uh, they're responsible for supplying it. You are in control of what you eat. And that mindset of he controls what he eats and what he doesn't, but making it available. So we just make sure it's there. And he's now remembered that that's those big bowls. And he'll ask now, I want the big bowls of the fruit and vegetables, like Dr. Gill said. And so you you set a good example, though. You eat that stuff, too. We do. And that's the important part is them seeing that it's something that's part of our routine as well, helps them as well to see that it's not just unique or different to them. How do you explain the childhood obesity? I mean, aren't a, a third of kids uh, overweight or obese? And how, how did it happen? I mean, I, I, there were very few kids when I was growing up in my grade school or middle school who, who were obese. Not true anymore. Unfortunately, you're right, it's not. And some of that, as many of us have noted, relates to the lack of activity. 
So the screen time, which I know we're going to get to that part yeah, for a second, but again, know. more screen time, less activity, less time outside, being physically active. So physical activity is an important part. I, I Our son is debating about what activity or sport he enjoys currently, and <laughs> seems like he goes with the wind. But what I told him is he will have something that's physically active, and he can have something that's academically challenging, but he will pick something physically active. So that's what I try to encourage parents is try to pick something that keeps your child active. And then from a diet perspective, at a young age, children have a great awareness to when they're hungry and when they're not. We, as parents often, because that's how we were raised, was clean your plate. You have to eat everything. Try to really encourage them to eat until they have the energy and they're satisfied and full, but don't make them clean a plate so that they're over full, because that's when they lose that ability to know when I'm hungry and when I'm not or when I'm full and when I'm not. And I think that that's part of the obesity problem is kids no longer have that awareness to when they're hungry and when they're not. They just eat to eat. More than anything, I want to say, oh, we're out of time and can't talk about screens, but we're not out of time. <laughs> so let's talk about screens, because, again, possibly not the same good routines for screens in the summer as during the school year. Exactly. One of the uh, direct correlators for screen time is the inability to fall asleep. So the recommendation often is to shut down or stop screen time at least 60 minutes before sleep. The other part I often encourage parents is the plug-ins, especially with your adolescents. Make that in the kitchen, in the office, somewhere central, not in their bedroom. Because oh, many, the recharging thing? Yeah, the recharging, yeah. Because okay. if it's in their bedroom, even though you've told them lights out, there's a good chance that they're up texting, watching videos, doing all sorts of different things. It's not a good on. chance. It's guaranteed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so making that central location. Now, back to the habits, though. We have to model those same habits to our children. So mm-hmm. when they see us on the screens till right before bed or see us on screens in our bed, then they kind of question, why is there a standard for me and not for you? All right, we're getting ready to go back to school. You know, it's important to get started preparing early so this school year can be as good as possible. Get a health checkup, and you talked about that. Not really many tests involved, but a conversation, physical exam, blood pressure, uh, vaccinations, HPV certainly, starting what um, at age 9, right, for girls, 9 to 11, to get their first uh, shot, and it for only takes two boy, now. For, for boys, boys and, and girls, to start at age 9. All right, get involved in your kids' school, know their teachers, and do the best you can to provide them with a healthy diet. One more thing. I did. I just had one more thing that uh, I think is really important for parents. With your children, set goals based on effort, not on performance. So I always tell my son, did you try your best and did you have fun? Because the other stuff will figure out. The GPAs will figure out. The winning and losing will figure out as long as they try their, their best at everything they do and they have fun. All right. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic family physician, Dr. Summer Allen. Terrific. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll have tips to help kids to help keep kids healthy this school year. And what you need to know about kids and sports from a Mayo Clinic expert. Coming up, Vivian Williams and a health minute. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Up to 80% of women have fibroids by age 50. According to the National Institutes of Health, uterine fibroids are non-cancerous growths of the uterus that often appear during childbearing years. Some fibroids are as small as a seed, and women may not even know they have them. 
Other uterine fibroids become large and can cause severe abdominal pain, pressure, and heavy menstruation. The NIH reports that more than 200,000 hysterectomies are performed each year due to uterine fibroid symptoms. Treatments range from medication to ultrasound to embolization to surgery. If you have symptoms, there are ways to help. Talk to your health care provider about which treatment for fibroids is right for you. Now, is the leftover sunscreen from last summer still okay to use? Well, maybe. Sunscreens are required by the Food and Drug Administration to remain at their original strengths for at least three years, and some products include an expiration date indicating when they're no longer effective. This means that you can use leftover sunscreen from one year to the next up to that expiration date. Keep in mind, though, that if you use sunscreen as recommended, generously and frequently, a container shouldn't last that long. And to keep your sunscreen in good condition, avoid exposing the container to excessive heat or direct sun. Place sunscreen containers in the shade or wrap them in a towel. As for how to apply it, a good generous application is one ounce or about a shot glass full, the amount in a shot glass anyway, to cover exposed parts of the body, meaning face, neck, and hands. You might need to apply more depending on your body size, and you'll need more if you're in shorts or a swimsuit. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you are the parent of a school-aged child or maybe a teenager, it's a good idea to do everything you can to keep them healthy. I mean, you don't want to miss school. You want them to miss school, right? How exactly am I supposed to do that? Well, here to tell us is Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi. Dr. Pa- Dr. Rajapaksi. Yes, Dr. it's good to have you back. Good to have you. Great, thanks. It's great to be back. How do you keep kids healthy during the school year? So I know it's easier said than done. They spent the whole summer kind of being active, being outside, usually with fewer infections. But as soon as they hit the classroom, it seems like every kid starts to get sick. Into the Petri dish. Exactly. (laughs) So that happens for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that you have a lot of kids in a relatively confined area or a small space, which really facilitates the transmission of different infections uh, between all of them. And so there are a few things that we can do to help to try and keep them healthy. Probably the most simple or basic one, but the most effective is hand washing. So give us, give us some tips. How do, yeah. you, how do you wash your hands? So it can be difficult, especially with kids who are very busy doing lots of different other important things during the day to teach them how to wash their hands properly. But it is something that's worth doing a little refresher on before they go back into the classroom. Yeah, let's pretend that it's only kids <laughs> that have a problem remembering <laughs> how to wash true, their hands actually, correctly. Yes. So how do we do it? So one of the first questions that comes up is whether people should use soap and water or the alcohol-based uh, hand rubs. Um, there are definitely situations where soap and water is preferable. Uh, The first is if you have a visible soiling of your hands with dirt or grease or something like that. Um, The alcohol-based hand rubs are not very effective in that situation. So soap and water preferred in that situation. The second situation is with uh, most diarrheal illnesses. Mm. So there are some types of viruses, especially things like norovirus, which is uh, the most common cause of stomach flu now, where soap and water is more effective than the alcohol-based hand rubs. Aside from that, um, using whatever you have on hand is uh, fine. Um, and the most important thing is just to make sure that whatever you're using, you're using it properly. So the biggest thing for uh, soap and water is uh, to use enough soap that you get a good lather on all surfaces of your hands. And using either cold or warm water, using hot water is not any more effective and generally leads to more um, irritation of the skin. And so using a 
water temperature that's comfortable um, for you is recommended. Cold water is okay? Cold water is okay. Um, Cold or warm water is usually what we recommend. And then the other key is to make sure that you wash them for long enough and that you scrub all the different surfaces of your hands well. And what is long enough? Yeah, so long enough usually is uh, somewhere between 50 to 30 seconds. It's been found to be kind of the most effective duration of time. And so in uh, if you want a little trick, it's if you hum happy birthday to yourself twice at the usual speed, <laughs> you should land somewhere around the 20-second uh, mark. Common areas that people miss when they're washing their hands, so under their nails, the backs of the hands, and in between your fingers are kind of the big areas to focus on and make sure that you're you're hitting. Germ prevention. Yes. Let's talk about uh, the flu specifically. Are you a vaccine proponent, I assume? So, yes, I most definitely am a vaccine proponent, along with hand washing. Uh, vaccination is the next uh, most effective way to prevent uh, many types of infections. And so we definitely advocate for flu vaccine for everyone over six months of age. All right. Tell us how to cough and sneeze properly. <laughs> yeah. So the concept of cough etiquette is uh, very important, especially going back to school. Um, another good thing to kind of refresh your kids on before they uh, hit the classroom. Uh, cough etiquette refers to uh, coughing either into a tissue or into the sleeve of your uh, clothing um, instead of coughing directly um, onto your hands and your fingers. Um, because when you do that, you are at much higher risk of spreading uh, infectious particles. So tell us um, when your child uh, becomes ill, how do you know when to keep them home from school and how do you know when it's okay for them to go back? Sure. So um, there's a couple of important concepts here. One is that certain schools or daycares may have their own rules or guidelines about um, children who can attend school when they have various types of symptoms. So it's important to know what the rules are at your child's specific school or daycare center. But in terms of general guidance to parents that we offer, um, kids who are actively having fever, uh, generally, it's best to keep them home for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that they're probably not feeling well enough to participate or really get much out of going to school when they're that sick. And so it's worthwhile keeping them at home. The other thing is they may be contagious. So sending them to school when they have fever and infection might cause risk to other uh, children. And you never know who else is in the classroom. There may be kids who have weakened immune systems um, or things like that in the classroom. And so you don't want to be exposing people unnecessarily to infections. When you're talking about kids feeling crummy, if they have a sore throat, how bad does a sore throat have to hurt before you take in to see if it's strep throat? So uh, that dis- differentiation doesn't uh, depend so much on how much pain they're having, but on a couple of different things. So probably more than 90% of sore throats in kids are actually caused by viruses. Meaning uh, antibiotics will not help. Exactly. So antibiotics are of no benefit to someone with a viral infection and will not help them feel better any faster and certainly can cause uh, side effects or um, issues if you take them unnecessarily. The things that we look for to decide whether a child might have strep throat and might benefit from a throat swab um, include, so having fever, obviously sore throat, throat pain, uh, enlargement of the lymph nodes that live in the front of the neck, and the absence of symptoms of a viral infection. So cough, runny nose, if you have those, much more likely that you have a virus and not strep throat. Um, you can't tell by looking at someone's throat whether they have strep, a bacterial infection, or a viral infection. They can look identical. And so if a physician suspects that a child has strep throat, um, the only way to prove it or disprove it is to take a throat swab. And so it's very important that that's done before any antibiotics are uh, prescribed so you can confirm the diagnosis. And you can get the result back pretty quickly now, can't you? Yeah, so now we have uh, rapid tests for strep. You can get the results back within a few minutes to an hour within the um clinic itself. 
Um, but if that test is negative, often they are sent for a full, uh, what we call bacterial culture, uh, to confirm whether there is actually strep bacteria there or not. We have 60 seconds left. Let's talk about head lice. <laughs> sure. I'd rather not, but let's do it. Yes. How do you know when your child has head lice? So uh, head lice is a common infection in kids. I kind of categorize it amongst nuisance infections and not necessarily harmful. So I think that's the first thing for parents really to know is that these uh, parasites that can live on the scalp, they don't transmit any dangerous uh, infections. It's but they gross. can be a nuisance to get yes. rid of. <laughs> Symptoms that a child might have, most commonly we see um, an itchy scalp. They may complain of a sensation of their hair moving or uh, something moving on their head. And you may actually just see the lice themselves crawling around, which is the other way that they usually come to attention. Ew. All right. <laughs> Hold on. And then what do There's you do more? to treat it? Well, because what people like to do is just put mayonnaise on their head and think it's done. But that, I know that's not the way to treat it. Yeah. So we do have uh, quite effective treatments for head lice, most of which are topical. So they're applied to the hair. Uh, some of them are available over the counter, which means you don't need to get a doctor's prescription in order to use them. Um, if you do uh, use one of those on your child, it's important to read the instructions uh properly and carefully um, to make sure that you apply it uh, in the way that it's prescribed. Also, you don't want their hair to fall out. That's right. No. <laughs> also, in kids under two years of age, it's worth visiting your primary care provider um, because many of these products are not um, safe to use in young kids. All right. Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapaski. Everyone wants their kids to be healthy and stay healthy, and now you know how. From a Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert, thanks for joining us, Dr. Rajapaksi. Thanks for having me. Still to come, the benefits and risks of kids and sports. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Soccer, lacrosse, baseball, football. (laughs) You know, getting involved in youth sports is a rite of passage for a lot of kids in the U.S. It helps them learn physical and social skills right on the playing field. But picking the best sport for your child and providing the right level of encouragement can be a challenge. Here to discuss kids and sports is Mayo Clinic pediatrician and sports medicine specialist, Dr. David Soma. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Soma. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Always good to see you. So talk to us about the the benefits that you see um, in young people doing sports. The benefits are immense. So they kind of spread across multiple different areas. So you can get your obvious physical benefits, so lower BMI. People who do sports typically eat healthier. BMI means basically weight. Yeah, Keeps body mass index. Yep. Yep, Fight obesity. Yeah. Um, it can also provide the other things like teamwork, perseverance, dealing with failure, dealing with defeat. You also have a social benefit, making friends. And then there's been some research that actually shows that kids will have better high school performance and grades, more likely to go to college, uh, more likely to have a high-paying job later on. So there's a lot of research that has shown high school and Youth sports are very beneficial in many areas. Uh, I like the beginning of this when I said, how do you decide which is right for your child? As if I had a choice in what was right for my child. Maybe uh, how do you decide what to green light for your child? It's a better way to put that. But are there some sports that are better than others for kids? You know, I don't think there are sports that I would say are better than others. They may be better suited uh, for each child. Um, so I think younger children need to pick sports that are developmentally appropriate for them. So, you know, expecting a four-year-old to catch a fly ball, their depth perception and things just really aren't appropriate for that. But having them run 
play, climb, maybe even start doing some basic things like soccer, gymnastics to work on kind of body control would be very appropriate. But um, as you get older, then obviously you want to kind of go with what seems to suit them. So some kids may not want to do a sport, so having a parent force them to do something they have no interest in would not make much sense. But mm-hmm. I think it's what they want to do, what's developmentally appropriate, and what the family feels would be a good fit. And when is it appropriate to begin weight training for your child? That's a great question. So for many, many years, um, even when I was a child, there was this conception that if you start weightlifting at a young age, that it could stunt your growth or have negative effects. More and more of the research shows that's probably not as concerning, but there is potential for injury. Um, and the main thing that I would say is that younger children, especially those before they go through puberty, they should focus primarily on proper technique and learning kind of the the benefits of weightlifting, kind of what is it supposed to do, learning about why you're doing it. And then as they go through puberty and they get those hormonal changes, then they can actually start to gain the strength benefits of it and kind of move forward. But I really don't think there's an age where I'd say this is when you should start it. But again, it's more on when they're appropriate, properly supervised, getting good instruction. But they could start that potentially in their you know late elementary years and then progress all the way through high school. Um, I think one of the things that has changed um I don't know, since I was in sports as a kid, is the amount and the level of practice. There's a lot more practice now. And we're starting to hear more that maybe that's not such a good thing for kids. Is that continuing the direction? Absolutely. Uh, I think the phenomenon we're encountering is uh, called sports specialization. So kids are more and more being kind of put into a specific sport saying this is a sport for you and they just keep on doing more and more and more volume and or they're doing you know four sports at the same time and doing a really large amount and that creates risk of multiple things number one would be injury the most common sport injury we typically see in the pediatric population is overuse injuries which means they're just doing too much um and it can set up a lot of problems uh, for kids and the other thing that can be a problem is burnout if you just take away the fun of sports kids aren't going to do it as much. And I think that can be problematic. Well, there's some sports that you can do year round. I mean, you can do soccer and hockey, mm-hmm. I suppose, gymnastics. I'm just, you know, the ones that I see yeah. um, year round. And that is definitely different than when we were kids. Yeah. You know, many years ago or even relatively recent, uh, kids doing three to four sports over the course of a year was very common. Now kids are starting to specialize at a much younger age, you know, saying I'm going to commit to soccer at the age of seven, not do the other sports, um, really focus on that. It can happen really in any sport. Uh, there's one sport that actually I haven't really seen that come to fruition with is football. There really isn't year-round football, probably for just a safety standpoint. But I, virtually every other sport I can think of, kids have the opportunity to do that sport pretty much year-round. Well, it's tricky because if you love swimming yeah. and you have the opportunity to swim year-round, then why wouldn't you want to do that? So that's where the parenting comes in to yeah. say we have to put the brakes on it. Yeah, and there are some guides to help parents, I think, on that. Um, we want kids to be competitive. We want kids to enjoy what they want to do. But if it's getting to the point where they're putting themselves at risk for injury or they're doing it at the, at the exclusion of other opportunities, then I think that's when it gets to be problematic. It's interesting you bring up the term burnout yeah. because uh, kids are quitting sports when they get older. There was a, a poll from the National Alliance for Youth Sports that said around 70% of kids stop playing organized sports by the age of 13 because it's just not fun anymore is what they say. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, I think there's multiple factors as to why kids are maybe dropping out of sports. Um, and I think one of the ones we've already talked about is that sports specialization. So the total number of kids in the country currently doing sports is more now than it was many years ago. So the total number 
number of participants is higher, but the number of kids that are doing one sport is is dramatically higher. And so I think that that sets up for burnout. But other things I think why kids tend to drop out is they get injured. So if you start specializing, you start having overuse injuries. If you're injured all the time, it's no longer fun. So injuries can help drive that. Sometimes the sports are getting more competitive. Most kids go into sports to have fun. And it starts off that way, but sometimes if it gets too competitive too early, kids kind of get frustrated. They don't enjoy it as much. There's more pressure from parents and coaches in the environment. And so that can be another potential factor. And then cost. Sports are getting very expensive. And so there are some limitations for families to do year-round sports because it requires travel, hotel, gas, um, paying for specialized coaches. And the intensity at those younger levels sometimes causes families to pause as they can't afford it financially. Injury prevention. Talk to us about that. And what, what can we tell parents to help their child from getting injured? Yeah, so I think that uh, early on when they're in the younger years, the emphasis should really be on unstructured play. So I think a lot of times we want to get kids into a special organized structure. But getting outside and playing with your kids, so going out and fishing, going for a bike ride, um, kicking the ball around the front yard, just doing things that are kind of more freewheeling, not so structured, can be very beneficial to get all those benefits and early introduction into sports and then slowly start ramping up as they get older. Um, There's been plenty of studies looking at what are the risk factors for injury and doing too much structured sports is actually a risk factor. Um, Doing sports year-round is a risk factor. So we recommend having kids take about two to three months off from a sport per year. During that break, they could do something different, but we don't want them throwing baseballs 12 months a year. That's going to put them at risk for a shoulder or an elbow injury. So when you're taking that break, if you want to go swim or run or play basketball or whatever it might be, that would be totally uh, appropriate. And then as they get older, um, other things to think about is taking rest during the week. If you're playing you know, five baseball games or five soccer matches on a weekend, you want to make sure that there's a day or two to recover. And a lot of times they don't have that recovery time. So that's a risk factor for injury. And then one little simple rule uh, that I think is nice is that you shouldn't probably do more hours per week in a single sport than your age and years. So, for example, if you're 13 years old and you're doing 20 hours of gymnastics a week, probably, a, and it's been shown to be a risk factor for injury. So, again, that's not a steadfast rule, but there's there's been some studies that show that that's a kind of a marker for increased injury. So there's a lot of things that we can do as parents to say, hey, let's keep this fun. I want you to do your sport that you enjoy, but let's try to remember that rest is an important part of recovery for all of us um, and really keep you safe. One of the things I've noticed as I've got teenagers now is the mental health benefits yeah. of having that physical exercise, the cardiovascular component. And when Practice is done, the season is done, mm-hmm. and that goes away. I definitely notice it in yeah. the teenagers' attitudes and, or just their, just the way that they seem to compo- compose themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think sports has significant mental health benefits, and um, specifically, there was some actually really great recent research that came out looking at those um, who have risk factors uh, for depression. So there's adverse childhood events like parental divorce, uh, uh, you know, abuse, neglect, other types of situations. And being in the sport, having those networks can be really protective against depression and other mental health uh, effects. But when the season done is done, a lot of times people kind of go through a little bit of a withdrawal. And so trying to find ways to stay active outside of sports is also very, very important. So whether that means continuing to do some activities through um, you know, a, a local youth club or um, being involved with school or just playing in the playground with other kids. Kids in Sports with Dr. David Soma. Well, there are lots of good reasons for kids to in, 
be involved in sports, and with a little research, you'll be able to find the sports program that best fits your youngster and your family's budget and their schedule. Ooh, that's a big part of it, yes. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zola. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.